Welcome to the Personalized Medicine Podcast. This is the place where scientists, clinicians, and entrepreneurs discuss the progress of this rapidly developing field. I am your host, Alexander Yahensky. Let's start. Thank you so much for tuning in to the first episode of Personalized Medicine Podcast. Before we jump into the episode, I would like to take a moment to introduce myself and tell you more about the idea behind this show. My name is Alexander Yehensky, and I will be your host for this podcast. I have graduated with a PhD from the Max Planck Institute for Biophysical Chemistry, where I have studied the early markers of Alzheimer's disease. I'm joined by a small but a very passionate group of fellow scientists who are helping me in building this platform. I will slowly unravel our team as we progress. So why personalized medicine? Well, I simply believe that this is the most exciting field of technology to work in right now. The promise that we can diagnose diseases earlier and then tailor treatments to the specific needs of the patient is truly fascinating. Opportunities are immense, but so are the challenges of developing and implementing those great new tools. And this is exactly what we will be focusing on on this show. Our mission is to connect clinicians, scientists, entrepreneurs, investors, patients, insurers, and all the other key players involved in the development of personalized diagnostic tests and treatments. We believe that ultimately the advancement of patient care depends on how well interconnected we are, how fast we share the knowledge, and, above all, how good we understand each other. In the first few episodes of this podcast, we will cover biomarker research and how it is driving modern diagnostics and personalized treatments. We have invited a bunch of very interesting speakers who will cover a broad range of topics and represent very diverse geographies. Well, I think that's about it for the introduction. Thank you for being with us today. And now let's get started with the episode one of the Personalized Medicine Podcast. Three, two, one, and we are live. Welcome to the very first episode of the Personalized Medicine Podcast. And what a guest do we have today to kick off this show. For our first episode, we wanted to invite somebody who embodies experience and true passion for personalized medicine. Somebody who works at the research frontier and at the same time understands all the challenges related to the implementation of scientific findings in clinics. And we could not wish for a better guest than Professor Kevin Mills. Kevin is the head of Translational Mass Spectrometry Research Group at University College London. He co-authored more than 150 publications in the field of biomarker discovery and precision medicine. The work his group is doing on translating biomarkers from research to clinics is truly phenomenal. His test for the diagnosis of Fabry disease is used today to screen millions of patients worldwide. But that's not all. His work on hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, type 1 diabetes, and Down syndrome holds an immense potential for improving the accuracy with which these diseases can be diagnosed and effectively treated. So, without further ado, Kevin, 
It is a great pleasure and honor to welcome you today on our podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. Great. Kevin, today we are talking about the personalized medicine, and it becomes more of a center of attention, even a buzzword. But it wasn't the case 10, let alone 20 years ago. So I'm really interested in hearing your story. How did you get interested in biomarkers in the first place, and what still motivates you to stay in the field today? Well, we got into biomarkers because essentially I am... I, even though I work on more common diseases, my, uh, my, my training and my core work is in, is in rare genetic metabolic diseases. So a lot of these diseases, there's not tests for, or the tests were not great. So what I was tasked with as a, as a, uh, I am an analytical biochemist. I'm a biochemist. So, um, not, not an omics person. And, uh, I, my, my role was to, to essentially trying to find out what's wrong with these rare kids. And I would sort of do either do proteomics, metabolomics, or lipidomics, as it's now called. And those biomarkers that we would then use to try to find out what is wrong with the children, we soon realized that a lot of drugs companies would see our publications and they were saying, well, can you monitor those in a drug trial for us? And then the hospital was set, would perhaps say to us, we have this child that looks like it has sort of rhubarb disease. It has all the symptoms, but we're not sure, but the conventional tests say it doesn't. So can we use your test? So from that, sort of that's where the biomarkers and developing new tests just come from. So it's not really a new thing. And and the, so what I found is when I, when I first started out doing my PhD in 92, I was doing a PhD in analytical biochemistry. And then all of a sudden its name had changed to proteomics. So and and now I find that the work I've been doing is now been for the last sort of thirty years is now called uh, personalized medicine. So I just think it's just that they've always been there. It's just given them a new name or badge, to be honest. Right, I understand. You have mentioned you got interested in rare diseases. You have done some very fascinating work on biomarkers of Fabry disease. I think it would be great if you could share your story on how this test was developed. So perhaps you can tell our audience first what the Fabry disease is, and uh, second, what was the biggest challenge in developing a reliable diagnostic test for it? Okay, so so Fabry disease is a, is a defect in the enzyme alpha-gal, so you can't break down a, a molecule called GB3, which is a glycosphingolipid. So the glycosphingolipid builds up in the lysosome, your lysosome swells or hypertrophies because it can't break down this molecule in the lysosome, and it leaks out into the circulation where it causes uh, significant organ damage. Patients usually die um, without treatment in the fourth or fifth decade of life, either from kidney failure or from a stroke or cardiovascular disease. So the, the GB3 tends to build up in the, in the um, endothelium, and these, uh, these patients also suffer pain. So I think, I think the figure was used to be 15% of patients used to um, attempt suicide because the pain was so bad. So, so, and then in about uh, about 1999 2000, the first therapy was developed for Fabry disease. It was an enzyme replacement therapy. So patients would come in every uh, every fortnight and have this infusion of the drug, and you could really significantly drop the levels of um, GB3 
in the plasma and in the urine and the patients, the pain went away and they seemed to get better. So my role in working with Genofi, uh, they were Genzyme at the time, now they're Sanofi Genzyme. Uh, we were approached and I did a postdoc uh, funded by Genzyme where they asked me to set up a test, first of all, to quantitate GB3 in the, in the plasma and urine of patients. And then, which I did, and uh, there was not an internal standard present at the time, so we managed to synthesize an internal standard, and I think that allowed us to develop the method. But our method, uh, it, it, it was long-winded, and it took, we could possibly do about 30 samples a day. So then we were approached by um, the uh, uh, Tiero Kitagawa in uh, Japan, the Tokyo Health Screening Authority, a fantastic man who sadly passed away in the last year. And he wanted um, to set up a screening method for Fabry disease in urine from all patients in Tokyo aged two to three years of age. So it was amazing uh, foresight by uh, Professor Kitagawa. So we, I worked very closely then with a company called Waters, who makes the mass spectrometer, to develop a, a screening method for Fabry disease using, just using urine. So essentially, to cut a long story short, we developed a method using a, a very small guard column, not the HBLC column, but actually the guard column itself. And so within three minutes, we could, we, this was before UPLC, this is, this is HBLC. We developed a method where we could take neat urine, we just added it into a standard, give it a spin to get a particulate out. We'd inject it straight into the HPLC MSMS. We get a creatinine value, and then we measure the GB3, and then we move on to the next sample. So we could do one every every three minutes. So that was how I was involved in in Fabry disease in glycous fingerlipid markers. So that's how I was in, involved in the glycous fingerlipidosis. And that started about 2000. And I went over to um, Tokyo in about 2002, where we implemented the assay. And I still think it's going in uh, Tokyo at the moment. I'm not entirely sure. But yes, we screens every patient in the, every child two to three years of age in, the, in well, he used to, in, uh, who's got over school age in Tokyo. So that's how I got into Fabry disease. Great. That's really inspiring. That's been a long story, but such an important story with an important improvement in the method itself, because it really matters how many patients can be screened per day, right? Especially if it is a routine diagnostic screening. You have mentioned that you have started this work on Fabry disease in late 90s or beginning of 2000s. How have the methods changed during the last 10 to 20 years? Particularly, have you seen any improvement in the speed or sensitivity of the measurements for protein biomarkers? So two things that I've noticed with the new machines I got rather than the, I've still got the old machine actually that we just measure creatinines on, is speed and sensitivity, right? So in general, the sensitivity is today is literally 500 times greater than I had then, which makes a massive difference. Resolution has improved considerably as well. Um, but I think the speed, the UPLC has, um, has helped significantly. So we can generally do things five times quicker than we can by conventional uh, HPLC. So, uh, so a mixture of speed and sensitivity. Um, yeah. So UPLC, I say, would be the biggest jump. And the biggest uh, change, the the sort of game changer for uh, for uh, LCMS specialists. Okay, I understand. 
And on the side of mass spectrometers themselves, do you see a lot of improvement? And are these technical innovations uh, really relevant for the measurement of clinical samples? I, I, I think... Um, it- I think for the sensitivity of the instruments now, so even the, in, I've been fortunate enough to have the top of the range instruments in our laboratory, but the, even the bog standard instruments now are so sensitive that they, they can do most conventional things that people want to do. Um, and, and essentially most analyses done by mass spectrometry people want done are amino acids, um, plasma carnitines, um, vitamin Ds, those type of stuff. And even the bog standard instruments are so sensitive they can cope with that. You don't need the fancy instruments, uh, the top end really expensive ones to actually do a lot of these things. So the bog standard triple quadrupole instruments are, are, are more than capable of doing 90% of the things that we require today. And, and to be honest, I see a lot of work now is coming out where people are trying to put research instruments into a routine environment, you know, like OB traps and QTOFs and things like that. And and I'm not sure that, that they are robust enough yet to actually enter a clinical laboratory because we use a term at Great Ormond Street Hospital as the assays need to be bomb-proof before we actually can put them into the, into the uh, clinical environment. And that's the, that's the trouble. And triple quadruples are incredibly versatile, but they're incredibly tough. And uh, they just work. They're good workhorses. And the higher-end instruments haven't got that reproducibility yet. Yeah. I would like to follow up on your last point, because it is really important that we are able to translate the biomarkers from research to clinics. Perhaps even re-establish the measurement methods for the same biomarkers. If you look at the field, particularly at what is published today, then you would see that pretty much every day somebody would claim that they have discovered a new biomarker for specific disease. But in the end, very few of those proteins, metabolites, or DNA sequences get translated into actual clinical tests. Why do you think this is the case, and how can we improve this transition? Well, I think um, you you have two sort of separate entities here. You have research scientists who are paid to find, say, biomarkers or disease mechanisms. And then you have clinical scientists and doctors who are a separate entity. And I think as a, as a researcher, you know, to be brutally honest, your job is to find a new biomarker, show that there's an elevated level in a certain number of samples and publish those Results to say, look, there may be promise in this, that these may be useful for testing this, that, and the other. Um, and a university may or may not patent that. Um, but that step, taking it from uh, being a promising test to actually in a clinical, in, to put into a clinical environment is a big jump. And I think a, a lot of the things fail essentially because if you, if you measure, um, particularly in rare diseases, about 50, 60 samples, you can distinguish patients. Even when you do two, 300, 400 samples. But I think then sometimes when you move up to about 10,000 samples, those biomarkers can fail um, to make them robust. And to do a big biomarker discovery, a, a biomarker validation experiment, that takes time and money. That's another aspect. I think um, I'm not sure that... Um, 
uh, research scientist has the sort of will to actually do that because of little interest to them. Um, there's, so there's a big gap between the research and putting it into the clinic. And particularly in the NHS where we have at the moment, there is, there is no uh, training protocol. There is no position for people for translational test development. So that's where it's stuck. And, um, and of course, a lot of biomarkers fall by the way, because they just, because you, 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 when you do a, a biomarker discovery experiment or a lipidomic experiment, you could get a big long list of potential biomarkers. But then what you then need is to validate them by another method. And I, we work on the, on the, on the criteria of one in five things that we show is elevated or reduced. Actually, when we develop the, the validated test, there's actually no change at all. It's only one, one in five things. And that's a good strike rate. One in five, maybe one tenth of things may be of use. And to do that, you can see that if you're going to get stuff traditionally, you'd have to develop an ELISA test or a read assay. No company is going to take that risk of taking a biomarker and developing a kite mark kit that actually might not validate to maybe It's not financially viable for them to do that. So the way we've tried to sidestep that is to validate the biomarkers first using triple quads. And of course, triple quads can multiplex. They're present in most large hospitals. So for us to, 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 to bridge that gap between the research labs and the clinical labs is try to get stuff onto triple quadrupole-based instruments. We could, we could do the validation, so then we can throw out those four that weren't biomarkers, maintain the one that is a biomarker, provide a bigger study, and then eventually, if it is a good biomarker, it's very easy to transfer from triple quad to triple quad. So in my hospital, the, the hospital has made this a lot easier. The, the, the work I do with Professor Simon Heels here at Great Ormond Street is Simon's bought exactly the same instrument as me. So my test, as soon as I develop it and we can say it's good, I can immediately just by pressing a button send the, uh, the, all the conditions over to him and we're good to go. It's not quite as simple as that, but in theory we can do that. So that is, that is the way we have tried to bridge the gap is to, is to put things onto triple quads. I understand. So you've mentioned that there are somehow misaligned incentives between academia and clinics because scientists are naturally not necessarily incentivized to develop the most robust biomarkers. They're interested in publishing their articles in highly rated peer-reviewed journals. Yeah. And there is no one, so to say, in between to pick up the flag on the scientist side and bring it all the way to clinics. So what do you think um, would be the ideal scenario in this case? Who should fill in this void? to carry the most promising findings from academia and translate them to clinics? Well, it, 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 it has to come from, um, it, that's a very good question, whose responsibility is. And, and, and if you ask either, either parties, one would say the other and the other would say the other. And we've been going around like this for, for years now. I, I would say um, we have a lot of funding in the UK from biochemical research uh, Council money coming to hospitals, and they are um, and, and essentially we provided funding to um, increase research efficiency of the NHS, and and the BRC funding is possibly the way, which is funded by the government to translate these research tests and bring research and uh, and the clinical environment together. So I, I would say it is more onus on NIHR sort of BRC type. 
funding. Um, but you know, local research councils are just not interested in doing that. It, it, there is a gap, and and I don't think it's anyone's fault really, but there is a there is that gap between who's resp- who is responsible, and unfortunately, where you can get funding to employ someone who can actually go in and take a research method and then make it into an accredited bomb-proof type method and then implement it into a hospital. Because hospitals don't really have, particularly with the high-end sort of multiplex tests that uh, myself and other groups are developing, they don't have that expertise in a hospital to actually take the specialist uh, tests on. There needs to be a sort of specialist, sort of someone at postdoctoral level, mass spectrometrist, who can take these things and and, and take them on. And, 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 And I think hospitals probably need to create positions like this but you know in the current environment particularly in the uk with austerity we're cutting positions not actually investing in in uh in in positions unfortunately i understand yeah that's a complicated question that probably doesn't have an easy straightforward answer but let's hope we will move towards that future and we'll have more biomarkers translated from academia to clinics. Well, I think if it's commercially viable, then 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 it, it could be that industry could step into, um, you know, um, like in the states, um, hospital analyses are more or less privatized. So, if it's commercially viable to set up methods that can do this, then um, you know, hospitals will. Um, sort of outsource to a private industry to do the tests for them. So perhaps that, that's another avenue that could be done. Right. Do you see the possibility of pharma companies stepping in um, in terms of companion diagnostics when they try to develop new drugs that might work in a subpopulation of patients depending on their levels of specific biomarkers? Or do you think it is rather an unlikely scenario? Um, I didn't quite understand the question. Sorry. Yeah, so what I've meant is, for example, if pharma company would develop a new drug and they know that most likely patients would respond differently depending on the levels of specific biomarkers in their plasma or urine, if they would be interested in screening those patients based on those specific biomarkers, do you think that could give a push to the field in general, to develop more tests, um, more robust clinical tests. Well, I, I think that sort of in um, in the research part side of things and the hospital side of things, we're, we're, we tend to be a little bit skeptical. Of things driven by um, industry, they may have ulterior motives, as in, uh, or I wouldn't say ulterior motives, but different motives. So these are more financial and as more for the patient. So. Um, it is a difficult thing, so it, that is a difficult thing. But to be fair, in my my field of lysosomal storage diseases, um, it's been driven by uh, pharmaceutical companies who have been absolutely superb, who work very, very closely with the clinicians. And um, yeah, I've been so impressed. It's, it's probably the only thing where I've ever encountered in 30 years where there's been such a close relationship between pharma companies and the researchers. And, and actually providing money for research into these rare diseases. It's, it's, a, it, it's actually a nice place to work, like some store diseases. Great. Going back to the rare diseases, actually, why do you think we have a growing need to develop tests for rare diseases now? 
Is it because we can treat them better now because we have those new effective treatments that are emerging? Or is the financial incentive for pharma companies is higher than it used to be to go into this area? I, I think both. I, th I think um, I think the first aspect is if you're going to pick up a child with a with a, a rare genetic metabolic disease, particularly lysosomal ones that tend to be neurometabolic, you need to get them early. You need to get them very very early because you know you don't want you want to get treating them. Uh, you want to. You don't want to treat them, as we say in the UK, shut the stable door after the horse has bolted. So you want to get them before they have the symptoms. So you need to develop a new test for that. Um, and I think it's been driven of late because it's been a sort of uh, enzyme replacement therapy, chaperone therapy, um, and particularly gene therapy, which is coming through now, which has revolutionized the, um, the, the field. And it, it's an easy way, again, things to market and to the patients quicker as well. So I think the, almost the pace of the, um, the treatments that have been developed for rhizome store diseases outpacing my cap certainly my capability to find new biomarkers for them and develop new tests to monitor the treatment. Of course, and, and if you have got these um, new treatments coming online, you really do need to have a good biomarker that actually follows treatment as well. So I look at two biomarkers. This one tells you whether you have rhubarb disease or not, but then there's the really good biomarkers that tells you you have rhubarb disease and how you're responding to treatment. They're two completely different things. It's usually quite easy to find a, well, not, it's, it's relatively straightforward to find something that will diagnose a patient. Um, but the tricky thing is to find a diagnostic marker that will pick up those patients before they have symptoms and secondly will follow treatment of the symptoms. We are doing this show for you and your feedback is very important to us. So if you have any suggestions or comments, would like us to cover a specific topic or recommend a person we should interview, please write us an email to team at personalizedmedicinemedia.com or you can just reach out to us on Twitter or LinkedIn. Just type in Personalized Medicine Podcast and you will find us there. To make sure that you won't miss the new episodes of our show, please subscribe to the newsletter at our website, personalizedmedicinemedia.com. It's one word, personalized medicine media, spelled with Z as in American English. Our website is also the place where you can find show notes for each episode that include bios of our guests, links to their most notable work and projects, and follow-up reads on the topics we discuss during the episode. And now, let's get back to the interview. Another question that I wanted to ask you is related to your recent publication on hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in Molecular and Cellular Proteomics Journal. This is a very interesting disease, yeah. and I would like our audience to hear a bit about the panel of biomarkers you have developed to diagnose this condition. So, okay, I can tell you the story about that is um, I work on lysosomal storage diseases. And what's the curious aspect is in, in, a, in rare inborn aerosol metabolism, so particularly in so the mitochondrial disorders, patients with Fabry disease, some of the mucopolysaccharidoses, um, some of the glycogen storage diseases, 
all these patients tend to get some kind of cardiomyopathy at some point. So that was my interest is why that these, di these different diseases with completely different primary defects can all result in, in cardiomyopathy. And so I was working on, um, on some patients on Fabry disease and something called congenital disorders of glycosylation. And I was lucky enough to be lucky enough to introduce to Professor Pe Perry Ellett, who is a professor at University College London, who's sort of a world expert in, in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And working with Perry, he was explained to me how, how basically what heart dynamics is, and I, I was just amazed how complex your heart is. Um, but Perry was asked, "Could you find a biomarker for it?" And of course, it's you know altruistic because I would find a biomarker not for the adults, but actually for our patients ourselves. So we were the, we started off with we had a clinical fellow doing a PhD called uh, Dr. Caroline Coates who came into our laboratory and she was analyzing heart biopsies from patients with cardiomyopathy. So it was initially started off using, trying to find biomarkers in heart biopsies. And then we found some biomarkers there and did we did some uh, histopathological staining, which confirmed the analysis. Lumican was our, was our, our biomarker for that. And we could see strange things like a energy switch that was going on through the proteomics uh, analysis of the pathways. But then my, uh, my colleague, Dr. Wendy Haywood, uh, started a biomarker discovery on plasma samples from these patients. And typically, plasma proteomics doesn't usually go anywhere. And Wendy likes to remind me how she's found six biomarkers from plasma that I said would never work. So what we did was we took a whole lot of biomarkers from the plasma proteomics and a whole lot of biomarkers from the cardiac analyses that we did. And we made a long list and we made them into a multiplex test. And then what we then did is we it started off with 56 biomarkers. And then we did a validation cohort, and that went down to 20. So we could reliably detect 20. And then we did a, a validation cohort of about 50 samples, and we found nine things were looked like they were changing. Then we then took that test of those nine biomarkers, and we analyzed about 400 samples of patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy of different stages of cardiomyopathy. And of course, we had all the clinical analyses that came with it that uh, we, we performed. And uh, another fellow came in, Dr. Gabby Capture, came into our laboratory and uh, the method was developed and Gabby took on um, the analysis of the data. And this is what really I felt I'm getting a bit old in the tooth now is that uh, Gabby's expertise is in machine learning and artificial intelligence and biostatistics. And what Gabby was uh, able to do was find that when we analyzed these nine biomarkers in 400 so samples of, of a varying uh, degrees of the disease, we found that s only six of them were actually valid. And when you bring them together using machine learning and artificial intelligence, if you bring the six together as a paddle, you could significantly increase the specificity of the disease. And, and, and this is where things are changing for all dinosaurs like me is that traditionally we are used to, as biochemists, we like one disease, one metabolite going up or down on treatment, and we can cope with that. But when you have six things brought together as a panel, 
going up or down to see you responding to treatment. You're taking away the human element. You're having to trusting machines to do the work for you. And I think that's a hard thing for the older generation like us to become accustomed to. But we have to because it's coming. The younger generation don't seem to have a problem with it. For me, moving from one biomarker, one disease to six as a panel is, uh, is a difficult concept, but one we need to embrace. Yeah, this is really fascinating. You have mentioned that this can be the way for the future that we measure multiple molecules in the sample. Yeah. Do you think that these panels of biomarkers, be it proteins, metabolites, or lipids, or anything else, have a stronger potential in clinics in terms of robustness of outcomes, in terms of accuracy? Well, I, I, I think um, the, first, the, the first most important omics is, uh, as my good colleague, Professor Nick Fox, always likes to tell me, is the most significant omics and the only omics that really matters are economics, and particularly in, in the NHS at the moment in the UK, and it's cost. And it is much cheaper to actually do a have a panel of lipids or metabolites or prote targeted proteins that you can perform on a, on a triple quadruple mass spectrometer than it is to do whole genome sequencing at the moment. And I think, you know, I think the, the cost of whole genome sequencing is, is, is becoming incredibly cheap at the moment. But then the problem is you have so much data that you have to troll through for, to get the uh, result at the other end. So I think if you can do it by mass spectrometry, it's much cheaper and quicker as you wait for the whole, G whole genome sequencing analysis to come in, because you can't really GWAS everyone who's born, though I, I, I'm pretty sure one day that will come in the, near, in the very near future, probably within my working lifetime. But it is much cheaper and more cost-effective to do a targeted hypothesis-driven panel of proteins, metabolites, and lipids to diagnose patients than there is to do genome sequencing at the moment. Right. And in terms of this most important omics aspect, economics, do you see the potential for proteomics or metabolomics tests or mass spectrometer-based tests in general to go significantly cheaper over the next, say, 10-20 years, or we have already reached the plateau of the prices? Well, well I think the, the, so to actually perform... Um the actual cost actually becomes in the capital investment of the instruments. And I think most triple quads are about $125,000, $150,000 now. Um, but they're incredibly versatile instruments. You know, they, you know most hospitals um, just buy them and will do one thing, like um, neonatal screening or plasma amino acids or carnitines. But they do tend to have a spare capacity in downtime. And it's very easy and they're very versatile to do peptides as is through metabolites or lipids. Our instruments in the research lab, the researchers, have no problem in flicking between metabolites, lipids, and proteomics, depending on what, what research project they're doing. But I think in the hospital, they need to embrace this a little bit more, the flexibility of the instruments. And I think as the instruments' prices come down, I think because that's the problem is they're still relatively expensive, 125000 As the prices come down, then certainly with targeted proteomics, you can certainly see where ELISAs and radio, particularly radioacids, because the radioactive component of it, these will be replaced by triple quads. And that, and, and that is why we're putting stuff on to triple quad-based instruments because 
you know, if you have, if you're buying several kits for your insulin, your glucagon, or your rhubarb, um, your expenditure is continual and for, for these kits. Whereas if you have a triple quadrupole based instrument, you could you you don't really need to buy all these kits. You can just do it for so for, for pennies when you do targeted proteomics. So the actual tests for a targeted metabolomic, lipidomic, or proteomic test is actually very very cheap. It's pence. You know, whereas it's usually pounds for an ELISA-based test. So if you can get over the mindset of investing in the equipment in the first instance, which is which is a significant amount of money, the long-term run of it is significantly cheaper. So I think once you get around that, then instrument more and more LCMS instruments will take this on. And I think um, hopefully, you know, with my research is what we're doing and my group's research you're doing is we, we try to show what is possible, and we try to show that you know, yes, you can use do targeted proteomics and develop into sort of accredited level assays, and so that's what we're attempting to do is trying to get that mindset over into the NHS. That sounds good and really optimistic. I wish more people would hear that and start implementing mass spectrometry in their routine clinical testing, because that's the future. I'm really curious because you just said that triple quads have a potential to replace ELISA eventually in clinical laboratory. What is your bet? Can it happen in the next five, ten, or twenty years? I think I think there are there are there are, there are a few companies who have um, started up and saying, "Oh, we can develop a targeted proteomics tests to measure your um, your target protein. Uh, we can do this for you." It is one thing saying you can do it. You can develop a targeted test for anything, but actually to actually measure it in a patient sample is another thing. When you go to the biological matrix, it is a completely different ball game. So it's not as simple as I as I as I likes to uh, <laughs> as I say. Um, but essentially, I don't think we'll be as biochemists replaced yet because there is lots of ways you need to decomplex decomplexify the matrix so that you can get down to the lower levels that you need to work. But I, I, I think as time moves on, I can see in 10, 15 years that, yeah, more things will be done on a triple quadrupole base instruments because they're now becoming more a more black box. So when I first started out, you had to literally do everything. There was knobs everywhere. But now the machines are essentially black boxes and 95%, 98% can be done um, automatically, particularly the tuning of peptides and things like that. I mean, I still like, because uh, I work in a research lab, I always like to show my students to manually tune their peptides to get a pin and ortrine because they understand what's going on. But you can easily just put uh, an, an intelligent, uh, invoke an intelligent program on the instrument that will do the fragmentation for you and create the MRM and the HPLC profile. But students don't learn that. But that's specifically geared up by the manufacturers of mass spectrometers to get these uh, instruments into, into the clinical environment. So I can see them becoming more and more um, popular. Um, perhaps in the next five years, I think... I think the problem is at the moment is NHS change in, in the NHS is slow. And I think the capability you know, is there. But I think some of the assays, uh, mass spectrometry based assays, 
people think that MRM-based proteomics is really, really sensitive. Well, actually, some of the ELISA-based assays, and uh, we can't approach the levels that we can get in some of the assays. So there is a little bit of sensitivity that we need to get down to, perhaps an order, order of magnitude down to the low levels. And then then I think we will be pushing for pushing uh, things like insulin onto mass spectrometers and targeted proteomics will come in because... Um, because, because simply because of panels, because you can multiplex. It's very hard to multiplex with an ELISA, but you can certainly multiplex using triple quadruple instruments. And if you're using, for instance, our HCM assay where we have a panel of six biomarkers, um, you couldn't really do that by ELISA, but you can do it by mass spectrometry very easy. So I think I think I think it is coming ten to fifteen years. I think antibodies will go, and I think mass spectrometry will come to the fore more. It's already there for metabolites and lipids. I mean, they're, they're the standard sort of uh, platforms for measuring them. But it, it's a funny thing getting proteins onto but predominantly metabolite lipidomic instruments because there's a different, completely different mindset of people who do metabolomics and lipidomics and the people who do proteomics, they never sort of um, overlap. So they do one or t'other. Um I think that's another mindset that you need to change. And I think uh, once that's over, you're, you're, it's game on. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems like there is another gap to be filled yeah. with some specialists or at least understanding between two groups of specialists. Since we are already discussing the future, I would like you to make predictions or perhaps to tell us um, where would you like the field to move from this point on? Um, where do you see personalized medicine in 5, 10, or 20 years from now? What do you think should be the biggest breakthroughs, both technologically and also on the side of implementation? <laughs> well, um, <laughs> if I knew all that, I'd be a rich man. Um, I, could tell you what I, I could tell you what I'd like. I would like, I, I think the, um, the omics based instruments um there are they are at best semi quantitative um if they could make them more quantitative um i think robustness so the omics based instruments what they can deliver is amazing but they usually broke um for every three months usually one month they spend broken and need fixed and refining so i think once you've refined the quantitative capability of omics instruments to make them approach or nearly approach um, triple quad based quantitation levels and also their robustness then perhaps personalized medicine will move in where you can screen everything in someone's plasma or every metabolites and lipids um, but until until that happens then I think things will still stay with quads for the next five to ten years um, that, that's the one thing I would like to see is, is the robustness and the quantitation levels of all based instruments made better. Um, and all mass spectrometrists, if you talk to them, what, what we always want, we want it to be more sensitive and we want higher resolution and we want it to do it quicker, faster, better than ever before. That's what we want. We'll never be satisfied unless it's, <laughs> unless it's quicker, faster and more sensitive. Right. So you'll just send all of your wishes to mass spec vendors and hope that they will implement them. <laughs> well, yeah, we are. It, it, it actually, they, they, you know, the... the the manufacturers competing with one another along those lines for sensitivity, speed, robustness, uh, sensitivity, accuracy, it's all driven by the companies. 
Um, and you know, we and we uh, we as consumers and users are direct benefit for that. Yep, there is nothing better than competition. That's true. Yeah. Great, Kevin. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge, your wisdom, and your outlook on the future of personalized medicine. The last question that I would like to ask you: If our audience wants to find you online or would like to familiarize themselves with your work, how can they do it? So the best way to do it is to, if you're interested in, um, particularly, uh, we have a particular interest in getting, uh, uh, we're firm believers there are too many um, perhaps lawyers and accountants and politicians in this world, and we get more, need to get more people into science. So if anyone wants to drop me a line on kevin.mills at ucl.ac.uk, particularly young scientists, you know, and that all school leavers who were interested in in those kids in schools doing their sort of uh, just before they go to university and they're not quite sure what they want to do. We run a scheme at the Institute Child Health at UCL here where we bring them in and we give them work experience and we show them what we can do and what is possible. And just this weekend, we engaged with the public at the BRC Open Day where we open up our laboratories and we show uh, patients of the families and actually uh, people in the local area, exactly what we do in the research labs. And, and I think if, they, if people want to get in contact with us, and we're more than happy for people to come and have a look around the laboratories, do some work experience for us. And uh, like I said, there's too many politicians in the world. We need more scientists. I cannot agree more with you on that. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's amazing. I must say that I have started following your lab on Twitter recently, and it seems like you guys have a lot of fun there. They can contact us on Twitter as well. I can't remember where our Twitter handle is. Yeah, we'll add it to the footnote of this episode. Yes, and you can contact us through that all the time and uh, we will reply to you. So I certainly recommend anybody who is interested in clinical proteomics or biomarker research to write to Kevin. His lab is certainly a great place to work. Kevin, thank you so much. This was amazing. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for being with us today on the Personalized Medicine Podcast. If you like this show and know someone who would enjoy it too, please share this podcast with them. The easiest way to do it is on LinkedIn or Twitter, where you can find us just by typing in Personalized Medicine Podcast. And don't miss the next episode yourself. For this, subscribe to the newsletter on our website, personalizedmedicinemedia.com. We also publish the show notes for each episode there that include our guests' bios, links to their most notable work, and recommendations for additional reads on the topic of the episode. And if you have any feedback or would like to suggest us a guest for the show, write us an email to team at personalizedmedicinemedia.com or reach out to us on Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a great day and until next time.